This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Need high quality fruit ingredients for your next apricot wheat or blackberry stout? Maybe you're looking to brew a raspberry pills or a blood orange saison. Vintner's Harvest has you covered with eight newly released varieties in their line of fruit purees. Packaged in convenient to use 49 ounce cans, each is packed full of top quality fruit. Vintner's Harvest produces the finest fruit product available to use when creating your own craft brew. Look for any of the 14 Vintner's Harvest Puree varieties wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guilt. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Everybody, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check things out. All right, and on today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss the impending doom of cans. Whoa. Some actual real science. A shindig in the Pacific Northwest and Denny's best attempt to be a politician. I'm going to be huge. Yeah. Watch out, free world. <laughs> All right, and then it's off to the brewery where we're going to do a little bit of ingredient exploration and then off to the lab for our next round of results in our second experiment coming in from our Igors. Uh, we'll be joined by Marshall Schott to discuss the results and see if there's actually something there. Uh, it's all about the Whirlpool this time. And then we're no longer in California. We're off to Florida to go talk with a, a combination homebrew shop and nano brewery. And finally, we'll hit you with another round of Ask Denny and Drew, where we take your questions and see if we can come up with credible answers. And then we'll close out the show with our quick tip of the week. You can support us on Patreon if you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can see the Experimental Brewing link, or you can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and click on the Patreon logo. 
We use the money that you pledge to uh, fund our experiments and the experiments of our egoers, and more importantly, our charity of choice. And the charity that we're supporting right now is called Freedom Service Dogs. They're a highly rated charitable group out of Colorado that rescues dogs from shelters and trains them into service animals uh, for folks with disabilities or military vets. Uh, throw us a bone and we'll throw a bone to the pooches. Uh, it's it's a great cause and please help us out and support it. So, uh, Drew, what's in the listener mail bag this well, week? Well, we're going to skip over listener mail this week because uh, really what we're get- taking all the listener mail for right now is uh, our Q&A show. This is episode eight of the podcast. In two more episodes, episode 10, we are going to do an all Q&A episode, or at least as many questions as we can stand to take. So if you have questions for us and you want to get a good answer, we highly recommend that you get your answers in, or your questions in, not your answers. We highly recommend that you get your questions into us as soon as possible via questions at experimentalbrew.com, via Facebook, via any of the places that you can find Denny and I, and if you get your ans- or your questions into us earlier, we'll try our best to actually get you real, informative answers. It will be novel. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, yeah. So uh, so get those questions in so we can do a little bit of research and uh, maybe help everybody out. Your question could be other people's question, too. So, Okay, man. Uh, I guess it's about time to uh, head off to the pub, right? Yeah, time to have a beer. Okay, we'll see you all in the pub in a few minutes. sitting here in the experimental brewing pub having a couple beers uh, i made a batch of my rye ipa recipe recently so that's what i'm having what are you drinking today well i don't know if our listeners can tell but i'm still a little bit under the weather the, apparently the peruvian guinea pig death flu does not want to leave me alone this year so uh instead of having a beer i decided uh i wanted to have something with a little bit of herbal property to it so i'm having a nice hot mead with some chamomile in it. Oh, hey, that doesn't sound bad at all, you know? Yeah, and it, for the listeners, it's super easy to make. I have meat on hand, so I just pop some in the microwave with a tea bag in it. Ta-da! Wow, wow, that's a that's a very interesting concept. I'll have to remember that. So, uh, first thing we want to talk about today is a, uh, is a shortage of beer cans that seems to be coming around. Uh, canning has become incredibly popular. I don't know if you have... Uh, have them down there, but up here we have a, a mobile canner mm-hmm. who will come around and set up, and uh, I'll let you even can your homebrew. Uh, Twenty-five bucks for five gallons, fifty bucks if you want uh, labels on it. Great deal, but uh, looks like maybe he may have some trouble trying to find cans in the future. So, uh, what's going on? Is it just a? Oh my God! Everybody has cans, and nobody can make them fast enough to keep them in stock. Well, that's that's kind of the deal, um, and. The problem seems to be much more acute with the 16-ounce cans than the 12-ounce cans because a lot of craft brewers are using the 16-ounce cans to kind of distinguish themselves from other people. But from what I've been able to find out from my research, there's like uh, three companies that that make beer cans. There's a company called Rexam, there's a company called Crown, and then there's Ball, the big player in the market. Um Part of the problem is that uh, Ball and Rexam 
would only take large orders. I mean, you had to buy like a truckload of cans at a time, which is like 150,000, 200,000 cans. And a lot of small breweries don't have the budget to buy that many at once and don't have a place to store them if they can buy them. So uh, Crown was uh, filling the smaller orders, but because of the demand, Crown has now gone to uh, only taking orders for cans by the truckload. And to further make matters worse, it looks like Ball is about to buy up Rexham, so uh, there will be even fewer choices for where to get your cans. Well, see, and that's kind of unfortunate because I think everybody's having fun with cans right now. You can have a big debate over how effective cans are. I think if people are getting the cans right, they're great. Uh, But I think in comparison to bottles and even uh, kegs, there's a lot of people out there who are still getting cans kind of wrong. It takes uh, a little bit more black magic to get it right. So, I don't know. I'm hoping people still have an opportunity to play with cans and, and continue to get it right because they are kind of nice. Yeah, I, there, are, there are a lot of advantages to cans. And uh, we've gone from the point where when I started brewing almost 20 years ago, uh, people looked at cans with disdain. And uh, now they've started to recognize the advantages that uh, putting beer in a can can have. And so they've become real popular. But that's what's led to the whole shortage here. So, uh I don't know what exactly is going to be the solution. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, maybe it's going to be something like where these canners are going to have to start like uh, having resellers or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, there we go. There, there's our next line of products: the uh, experimental yeah, brewing cans, recycled beer cans. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, it, it it's an interesting situation. We'll just kind of have to keep our eyes on it and see what happens. Uh, maybe maybe breweries will like start ordering cans together. Now, don't anybody get excited about that? I just well, made that up. Well, so. I, I, it, who knows? Well, but think about it. We have all these sort of uh, the rise of city guilds now. You know, we, we had yeah. state guilds. You know, the California Craft Brewers Association, uh, Oregon has one, I'm sure. You know, all, but now we're also starting to see. Hey, you know, there's the Los Angeles Brewers Guild. There's the San Diego County Brewers Guild. So right, yeah, maybe maybe that will become a service of these guild organizations. Could be, and uh, you know, some brewers are even talking about shifting back to the twelve ounce cans just because there's a little bit more availability on them. Well, so. all, all I know is I hope that it doesn't impact. Uh, actually, on Saturday, I'm going to go brew a figola saison. Uh, cue Denny's eye roll, but I'm going to make a saison yeah. based on a Maltese dessert that's served traditionally around Easter. And I'm going to actually have it put into cans as a judging gift for judges and stewards who come to our Mayfair competition with the Maltos Falcons in April. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I, I hope there's cans for you there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. So, hey, Denny, why, uh, why don't you tell everybody uh, about this uh, next time that they have an opportunity to hear you speak in person? Oh, yeah. You lucky people. Several years ago, as the National Homebrew Conference started to grow and grow and grow, the AHA started kicking around the concept of, you know, what if there were like smaller regional conferences that uh, were easier for people to get to, as well as the national conference. Some people here in Portland and the Pacific Northwest have decided, let's find out. So on March 4th and 5th, the first ever Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference 
is going to be held at the Vancouver Hilton in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Seminars, brewery tours, pretty much just a small version of, uh, of NHC. They've asked me to give the keynote address. I'll actually be giving a seminar besides that. And there are a lot of really, really great seminars from local people going on. Uh, people like, uh, like Terry Ferendorf, uh, Rod- Rodney Kibsey, uh, I believe Larry Klauser from Country Malt Group is going to be giving a seminar there. So it, it, there's going to be a lot of educational material. Uh, there's going to be a commercial brewer's night. There's going to be a club night, just like at NHC. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how this thing goes. Uh, I would say that if you're in the Pacific Northwest and you have March 4th and 5th free, uh, you might want to check it out. It looks like it's going to be a, a really great event and uh, might as well be there for the very first one. And where can they go to register? Uh, the website is pnwhc.com. I'm hoping that for our podcast listeners, uh, Denny is going to be uh, Johnny on the spot with a field recorder and maybe get us some uh, content from the conference. Yeah, that's that's my intention. I'm going to take my recorder with me and hopefully I can sit down with some of the people there and uh, and get some great interviews that we can run on the podcast in the future. So uh, you want to say a few words about real actual science, Drew? Yeah, I mean, I know this sort of stuff usually goes into the end of the show when we have our non-beery thoughts for the episode. But I really couldn't uh, resist throwing it here into the pub because this is perfect pub material to me. And I just wanted to take a moment and recognize sort of the incredible badass announcement that happened today uh, with scientists finding out uh, that they've actually recorded, you know, the first actual sort of, according to Hoyle, yes, legitimate observation and measurement of gravity waves. Uh, and they, they found them, remember, these are scientists with actual, like, degrees uh, from MIT and Caltech and places like that, uh, and who actually have, like, capital S attached to that word scientist. And they found these, uh, these measurements or these uh, observations with these two giant, like, two-and-a-half-mile-long antenna arrays that they've set up in Louisiana and Washington, and it's scientists from all around the globe. But basically, these two black holes collided together and formed, or two universes, or not universes, uh, two galaxies, I can't remember right now. I think it's two black holes collided together and generated enough energy that if it were light, for the 0.42 seconds that the energy was released, it would be the brightest thing in the universe by far and away. But instead, they recorded a sound, and the sound is the gravity waves. And that's just cool. Yeah, I mean, and, and so basically the takeaway from all this is that in 1916, when Einstein said this was the way things worked, he was right. Well, and what's funny is I think that was one of the things from Einstein's uh, theories of relativity that scientists mostly took away is like, nah, no, nah, no, nah, this is weird. This is way too radical and has way too many very bad implications for how the universe works if this is actually how it is. And Einstein himself went back and forth on it a couple of times, uh, finally settling on the idea that, no, no, this is real. And there have been a couple of observations in the past, but not with any sort of, like, degree of replication or confirmation. And so, like, this is the first time that people are like, holy Einstein was right. Well, okay, not the first time people have said that, but the first time that people have been able to point to this particular part of it and gone, he's right. 
that, that's our uh, that's our little uh, brief uh, pubby moment of science because science is fun. <laughs> science is fun. All right. So uh, let's uh, let's get into Denny's uh, spin as a politician. I do have to preface this before he goes on to his spiel. Uh, so Denny and I have both been on the HA governing committee in the past. Uh, I'm currently the vice chairman of the governing committee. Uh, Denny's been retired from the, the board for a, a year now. And the reason for that is in the bylaws of the governing committee, it requires that you take a year off every nine years and uh, stand for re-election. So Denny's been in his downtime, and this year he's standing for election again. But as a member of the governing committee, uh, one of the rules that we have is I am not allowed to directly stump for Denny. So now I get to shut up, and Denny gets to tell you why he wants you to vote for him on the governing committee. Well, you know, I'm not going to really go into this in too much depth because it, it really isn't fair to use this platform myself and not get everybody else involved. But I will tell you that uh, all four of our, the candidates, including myself, will be on the Brewing Network on February 22nd. So you can hear us all talk then. I'll just say that, uh, that I, uh, I had a great time being on the governing committee before. I, I feel like I had a lot to offer to uh, the AHA and to help out uh, all of you home brewers out there. And uh, I'm crazy enough to want to try it again. I figure if I can... Uh, get another uh, nine-year term on the governing committee. That means I'll be 72 when I get off of it, and that means I will have spent a quarter of my life on the governing committee. That's my goal. So there you go. Uh, No matter who you vote for, make sure you vote. Take a look at all four candidates and uh, pick two that you think will do a great job representing you. And now we're off for a new segment from the brewery. We're heading out to Drew's Garage, and we're going to talk about some, uh, some new ingredients that we're into. So we'll be right back with that. Hey, man. Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk to you about some new ingredients that we've been playing around with. Yeah. So a uh, couple of things real quick. Uh, welcome to 300 square foot of uh, standalone brewery goodness. But uh, yeah, we've gotten a couple of new things to play with. And we just wanted to tell you guys about them before we've actually even had a chance to play with them because we're kind of excited about them. If you remember uh, from our last two episodes, we had interviews with Roger Davis. Uh, and if you had your Roger Davis translation helmets strapped on tightly enough. You would have uh, heard us discussing a new hop with Roger, one that he was really enthusiastic about uh, uh, from Idaho and something, something seven, Idaho seven, blah, 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 blah. And that was the one that we tasted and I got uh, pears from, and there were stone fruit aromas and all sorts of different things. And Roger was having a great time with it. And of course, naturally being homebrewers, we went, well, can we play with this hop? And it wasn't available to us. But just this past week, I got an email from YakimaValleyHops.com. And they announced in their big blast, everybody, that they were now carrying a hop called 007, the Golden Hop. And uh, to come and get it from their website. And so I did. And it's in the mail right now. And it's arriving 
uh, actually tomorrow. So <laughs> I can't really wait to play with it because it's about a 14 to 15% alpha acid hop. It's supposed to be dual purpose, both bittering and aroma. Uh, and the description on it reads, complex fruity aromas of orange and apricot mesh with hints of black tea-like character and a pleasant fresh herbal bouquet. Now, I would love to be the guy who writes the hop uh, hop descriptions, but yeah, man. Uh, if this hop lives up to what we had in the glasses from Roger, I am really excited about it and really hope to uh, come back with something fun. Yeah, and it's a, the the hop when we got to smell it down there was uh, was really intriguing, as is the description there. So, the other thing we want to talk about is a. Uh, is a new malt. Uh, shout out to Juno Choi at BSG. He sent uh, Drew and I both a sample of the new Vireman Bark Malt. Uh, it's an heirloom malt uh, that has uh, been around for quite a while, and they decided not to let it die. Uh, really interesting malt in, in terms of the description. Uh, they say that it has... Uh, Good homogeneity, uh, good germination potential. Uh, it's real disease resistant, which is very important. Uh, excellent extract yield, superior diastatic power, and high apparent attenuation, moderate levels of soluble nitrogen, and low beta glucan. Uh, all of this says to me that this is a malt that is going to have a lot of flavor to it, that is going to be really easy to use in a single infusion mash. Uh, the moderate levels of soluble nitrogen mean you should get a fairly clear beer out of it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm got a, I've got 10 pounds of it sitting here, and I think that I'm going to make a, an all-bark pilsnerish sort of thing with it. Uh, what, what do you got on tap for yours? Uh, you know... I mean, people know me as uh, I'm not so much of a Pilsner fan. I uh, don't know why. I just have never been. But ironically, one of the things I really, truly love are Hellas box. Uh, people wouldn't normally think of me as being a lager guy, but if I'm going to go for lagers, right. I want a Hellas box. And I uh, really like to play with those. So given that they're talking about uh, this as having sort of these uh, big, multi uh, uh big multi-complex flavors and a really solid mouthfeel along with maintaining sort of this beautiful color during the boil. I'm really curious to, to try it and I'll take probably uh, my, my bock recipe and turn it around and uh, use the bark malt in it just to get a good idea for what it's like. Uh, and I also figure because why not? Uh, I'm also going to try and do one of these modified logger schedules to see if I can't uh, push it out a little bit faster. For no particular reason, other than oh, yeah, those play. Yeah, that works really well, man. I've done that um, many, many times now with, uh, well, many, many, six, maybe, uh, with with my loggers, and I find that it works really well. Uh, and it, interestingly enough, my Bach was my first thought for this, too, but I didn't want to have to add uh, any other malts to it to cover it up. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to compare our beers. Well, and and I think it's it's worthwhile to, tell, uh, to talk with the audience real quick about yeah, one of the things I think is interesting is, as Danny said, this is a heirloom malt uh, that Wireman basically has kind of kept going in their own fields. I honestly think that given all the production of all these different flavors that are coming up and like how everybody's trying to explore different profiles of things that they can bring in, and right now everybody's been doing that with hops, that I think we're bound to see a renaissance of heirloom malt varieties. Uh, we're already starting to see the renaissance of some local malt uh, varieties 
like uh, over in Massachusetts, you have Valley, Valley Malt serving as a micro maltster, and you're seeing micro maltsters jump up in lots of different places now. So I would suspect to say that malt is going to be one of these places where people are playing, and they're going to play with play with it in the sense of trying to bring back old varieties. Now, the real question is, well, why did these old varieties go away? And what you have to remember is that until people started to brew the beers that we're brewing now with this sort of ingredient focus, this idea of exploring these flavors, all these malt growers and everybody else, the hop growers, everybody, were all the whims of the demands of the big brewers who really just wanted reliability, extract, and as little flavor as possible. So that's the reason why things kind of kept uh, getting blander and blander and blander and why these malts would go away. Sometimes agricultural instability, sometimes the amount of yield they'd get, sometimes the amount of uh, quality that they'd be able to yield per acre. So it's really kind of nice to see some of this coming back. I I always like to think of this as also being kind of a German equivalent to Maris Otter. Uh, Maris Otter was introduced in the uh, mid-60s, like 1966, and has survived to this day despite many uh, announcements that it was pending its death. Uh, the fact that Maris Otter has, for instance, survived for nearly 50 years now is a miracle in the malting world. And so I'm really happy to see that sort of thing survive and hopefully to see it kind of grow because Maris Otter is one of my favorites. And who knows, maybe this bark will turn out to be one of my favorites as well. Yeah. Uh, who knows, ma'am? And we'll find out and uh, we'll let all you guys know what we think of this uh, new malt. They're also making a a Vienna version, and I, there's something. I think they're making a, a, a Munich out of it, also. So, could you imagine doing a Bark Munich IPA? Uh, I I can't imagine it yet because I haven't used it yet. But after I use it, then I'll start imagining it. How's that? There you go. I just think it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> it sounds like it could be a great idea. Okay, we're gonna uh, head over to the lab and uh, talk about the results from our whirlpool hop experiment. We'll be back in just a minute. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the lab at Casa Verde Estates. We're joined here by our chief beery science correspondent type person, Marshall Brulosophy Shot, to discuss the results of our second experiment here on the podcast. Hold on, Marshall. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back on again. Yeah, particularly, it's always fun to have you on when we're going to talk experimentation. So let's uh, let's give uh, everybody a real re- quick recap here. A few episodes back, uh, about episode five, if my notes are correct, we dropped the outline for the experiment that we're going to talk about today. Does it make a difference if you whirlpool your hops at 170 degrees or 120 degrees when you're adding them into your kettle? So let's before we get into the results, let's talk about the why of all this. Why do we whirlpool hop? So we're in this world now where everything's about the IPA, everything's about the hop potential of their beer, uh, and so it's no real surprise that we're seeing a whole bevy of techniques and concerns about hop aroma additions and additional flavor components. Now, thankfully, brewers have uh, seemed to have moved on from the bitterness swagger wars in favor of maximizing those hop aroma and flavor potentials. So let me start off with a real quick question. Do you guys whirlpool hop? Uh, I... I don't very often, and it pretty much goes back to my basic laziness. Uh, when I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing and go have a beer and relax. And 
quite frankly, uh, Drew, I have found that I can get pretty much the same effect uh, of Whirlpool hops through other methods. So, uh, you know, I just can't do it. Uh, yeah, so I've I started whirlpool hopping probably four years ago after reading an article in Brew Your Own actually, and um, you know the idea being to preserve more of the uh, uh, volatile oils, um, you, you know that that would volatilize off in, in warmer wort. Um, I I never personally this is one of those variables I never tested out myself, but uh, I'm really curious. I, I've never whirlpool hopped below about 160. So when I saw 120 degrees, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and as for myself, I, a couple of years ago when people started talking about hop stands and all this, I got really sort of confused because when I first started brewing, like I was taught, okay, you know, go into knockout, you know, turn off your flames, whirlpool your kettle, throw in a bunch of hops and then chill. And so I got really confused that there were a lot of people talking about this as if it was a new a new thing until I realized, wait, I do everything via counterflow chiller and most homebrewers are doing things with immersion chillers. So most guys with the immersion chillers were just basically dumping the immersion chiller in and then immediately starting once they turned off the kettle. So that started to make some sense to me. Now, I have never done it at this sort of lower temperature range in this 170, 120 area, but I totally get why people want to play with it and see what it will do. Uh, and yeah, uh, just like Marshall, I was kind of curious to see what it was about because yeah, the whole idea is preserve essential oils. All these aroma compounds that we have in hops are all made of these volatile oils that will sort of gas off or flame off or however you want to say it. And so a couple of years back, we started to see people start talking about, Hey, do these hop stands at 170 degrees, partially chill your wort and then toss in your hops and then let that sit for uh, 10 to 30 minutes, you know, in a whirlpool state, absorb in all that goodness and go. And the idea of bigger hop aroma, uh, less bitterness, right? So now what we've seen is that we've seen even newer techniques coming on, uh, thanks to uh, James Altweiss of Gorse Valley Hops, who said, well, you know, a lot of these essential oils are really volatile until about 140, so wouldn't it make sense if you drop the kettle below that before you added your flame out hops or your whirlpool hops so you'd get even more uh, hop aroma characteristics preserved. So uh, we did it, or to be more precise, we had uh, seven members of the Igor crew uh, perform this experiment to us. But before we get to the results, uh, let's recap the the experiment. So, uh, Denny, you want to go ahead and uh, uh, take it away? It was a really pretty straightforward experiment. Uh, a 10-gallon batch of wort was brewed, or, you know, whatever size the brewers wanted, uh, split into two equal-size halves. Uh, whirlpool hops were added to one half at 170 degrees and to the other half at uh, 120 degrees. Uh, and then there was a blind tasting done on the resulting beers. All right. And uh, hey, Marshall, can you uh, can you tell us who our Igors were for this round? The Igors for this round were Casey Price, Tristan Smith, Nikki Forster, James Bird, Robert Alloway, Jason Mundy, and Ryan Casey, uh, RTC. All right. 
So there we go. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you guys for doing that. RTC? What's RTC? I, I don't know. It was on the list, so. <laughs> yeah, right. You just read it because it's there. I don't blame you. I do what Drew tells me to. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a robot. Marshall's like, yeah. Yeah, Marshall's like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> he reads whatever's on the teleprompter. <laughs> you, San Diego. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk and see what exactly our tasters and experimenters reported back. I think some high points that we had to discuss. Uh, we had seven trials here. We had fourteen different tasting sessions uh, held by the uh, by those experimenters, with sixty eight total testers, and then thirty six of those testers successfully identified the different beer in the triangle test. And of the seven trials, four of them crossed the p value threshold of significance. Um, overall, the aggregate p-value showed significance to this variable discussion, saying, hey, you know, there's something here. And that, however, does lead to sort of our outlier discussion for this week. So, <laughs> guys, we want to talk about the outlier? We need to talk about the outlier. <coughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, one of our tasting panels uh, was led by uh, Nikki. And out of Nikki's 14 tasters, 12 of them successfully identified the beer. Now, this is sort of astonishing uh, levels of taste differential. Uh, and it's one of those things that actually kind of stopped us all of our all of us in our tracks and made us have to have a discussion about this. Uh, and you may start yourself wondering down the list of, well, okay, so 12 out of 14 tasters found the, the different beer. What's the big deal? Marshall, you want to walk people why through that you think this is a big deal? <clears throat> sure, yeah. Um, it To me, I you know... I can understand why somebody might look and say, well, if the beers are different, you know, the reality that 12 of 14 people or, or what I believe is 86% drew, is that? Yep. Yeah. Um, would say, well, that, that does, that makes sense. That's not surprising. But when you look at it compared to all of the other data, all of the other data sets, um, that is very different. The fact that 12 out of 14 got it right compared to say nine out of 17 or three out of 10, four out of six, um, that percentage alone is so it's, it's so far correct that it makes me wonder if perhaps there wasn't something, some other variable at play, some extraneous variable that uh, may have made that one beer a bit more identifiable or distinguishable than the others. Yeah, and so just to kind of get some uh, further research and uh, further information, we actually reached back out to Nikki and said, "Hey, Nikki, so can you tell us about our uh, about your tasting and and what happened?" And Nikki, being very clever, said, "Oh no, I'm the outlier this time, aren't I?" <laughs> so I uh, got to hand it to her for uh, figuring that one out. But uh, in this particular case, I think it's actually a very interesting piece of outlying uh, information. So of course, part of the thing that you have to wonder: you remember in our first experiment. We had one of the tasting panels showed a very strong identifier, but it was because there was a very obvious phenol in one of the samples. And the Igor mentioned that and recorded that. And so because of that, we actually went and eliminated those results from the aggregate data set. But uh, in reaching back out to Nikki, we actually walked back through what uh, she did for her tasting and uh, looked at the results and also had her go and retaste her beer just to see if there was anything that she had missed in the first uh, go around. And I think it's safe to say that uh, at least in looking from what, uh, what was reported back to us, uh, her triangle tasting seemed like a fairly standard, straightforward triangle test. Uh, she uh, reports back that each of the tasters reported three, two ounce samples. 
uh, two sample sets. Uh, the one piece that we don't normally uh, always recommend is that they were poured into clear glasses as opposed to opaque glasses, which is kind of standard in this sort of triangle testing. Uh, the only direction that she gave them was to taste the samples, uh, put them back to where they were sp- where they had initially grabbed them from, and identify the one that was different. And then after that, uh, ask them to record down the uh, the different impressions. Uh, but she she did say, I was doing this during the Super Bowl, and apparently very few people wanted to be bothered to do that. <laughs> uh, and she did include, uh, she even gave them a tasting sheet to be able to record down their impressions, and that was particularly awesome. And if we can, we'll try and include that tasting sheet, because I think it's a really good one. Yeah, we can post uh, it on the website. Yeah, so, I mean, at least just from the, the straight-up, reporting back of the result or the, her experimentation seems fairly straightforward, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't notice anything that was like an obvious signal. Did you Marshall? I didn't know. I reading through it. I, I came up with a couple of questions uh, that, that if she were sitting here with us today, I might, I might ask about, um, but on the surface, it looked like she, you know, her, her process was sound. Yeah. I, but, but I'm with you, man. It's like, those those results are like out there somehow. Well, and and a part of it for me is you know speaking from uh, just the experience of of doing you know fifty of these things on my own, even on those that are just highly distinguishable, very different, we're still not getting you know upwards of of eighty uh, percent uh, of tasters correcting or selecting the correct. Um, outlier, you know, the, the odd beer out. And so it, just seeing that was kind of a, made me go, huh? Yeah. And if you look at, she, she did a, a, a yeoman's job here and filled out her own tasting sheets and, and gave them back to us. So we could take a look at what was her impressions of the beer. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me was that she actually came out with a result different than the hypothesis with an actual preference for the hop character out of the 170, uh, degree whirlpool beer as opposed to the 120 Hmm. but like she i think the only thing that really kind of jumped out was okay so there are hop differences between the two like a a definite stronger hop flavor in the 170 than the 120 uh a to her impression a stronger hop aroma than the 120 and then a slightly higher level of carbonation but uh again she said slightly so not like enough to make it stand out as uh, as a variable, I think. Um, really, kind of uh, kind of amazing that who knows? I mean, it could very well be that you know there was a definite difference, and that definite difference was the hop character, which is kind of what's under investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anomalies happen. I mean, that you know that that's that's the way things work sometimes. I guess the the couple of things that I'm curious about, and I know we talked about this before, was. Uh, uh, I guess the two kind of glaring questions I have uh, in, in terms of just Nikki's uh, data is uh, h- how blind were the participants to the nature of the experiment? Did they, did they know what the variable was going into it? And perhaps maybe that had them uh, kind of narrow their focus on, on just hop character. And, and uh, I think probably the bigger question is, was there any crosstalk? Did that one person that everybody trusts is a good taster kind of give, give it away, which one, which one was, yeah. The different one, you know that because I've seen that happen, and I've had to scrub, you know, uh, that data when I when I blatantly see people. Well, I picked it because of that person over there, you know. I trust that their palate, you know. 
<laughs> but, well, uh, but that's not what we want to know, dude. I, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know, man. It's it, it's tough to do that. So well, and what I what I did think what I did think was funny was in her report uh, of the two tasters that didn't correctly identify the beer. There there was one person who said, I "Shouldn't have changed my answer." Damn it! Yeah, I saw that on the data. I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> So how do we how do we take this data, guys? Kind of like before, do we uh, have two sets of results, one with it and one without it? Well, and I think that's what that's what we we put together, and because there is also on the flip side of this. So Nikki's Nikki was on the high side with eighty six percent of the people getting it correct, and you usually would think in a triangle testing, even if it's just random happenstance, mm-hmm. you would get about thirty three percent of the tasters correctly identifying things, just sheer luck. And so on the other side, we had Nikki up there at 86% having all correct. And we had uh, Jason Mundy's uh, uh, tasting panel where he actually had 18% of the people get it correct. So he was actually down on the low side, which I also thought was an interesting outlier. But I know that Marshall has strong feelings about that not being as significant. <laughs> I don't know how strong my feelings are about him, but yeah. Oh, I, come on, man. To me, you can, you can uh, say it. Okay, I'm going to start crying. I'm going to start crying here in a minute. That's a, <laughs> so, <laughs> so to me, uh, you know, when, when you're looking at uh, incorrect selections, uh, it's a little bit different than when you're looking at, when you're picking one of three or you have the, or you have the chance of not selecting that one of three, because now the chances that you're going to select one of the two wrong ones is actually higher than the chance. If it's random, right, then you're going to select that one. Mm. So an anomaly like this is a little bit more likely than an anomaly where 86% of the people are, are correctly selecting the right one uh, by, by random chance alone. I mean, that, that, that seems a little bit more drastic to me than it, it just could be that, you know, there's uh, of 11 tasters, let's see, uh, the, the nine other ones, you know, uh, split it evenly. So you had, so you had four five and two, I, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem all that crazy to me, you know, flipping coins. Sometimes you land on head more than you do tails. Oh, yeah. Well, but I think, I think the ultimate upshot of this though, is that even, even if you take out, say, say we, we say that Nikki's data is way too out there and we can't, we can't quite trust it. So with Nikki's data in the the mix, you have uh, 68, out of 68 tasters, 36 correctly identifying the different beer, and which gives it a, a, an aggregate p-value of zero, which is part of the other reason to stand up and go, <laughs> wait a second. Yeah, right. I've never seen that before. Um, but even if you take out Nikki's results, right, uh, and we say, okay, uh, that's, uh, that's just way too weird and not, uh, not going to trust that information, you end up with 54 tasters, and of those 54 tasters, 24 of them successfully identifying which still gives you a p-value of 0.042, which is in that significant range. Yeah, it's right there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, just under, but it's there. Oh, yeah, significance is significance. When you're, looking, when you're using p-values, you just have to kind of go with that as the, as, the, as the line, basically. Yeah. And, and that makes some sense because what, we, what we'd see is out of the seven trials that we had, three of them sh- failed to show significance. And four of them showed significance. One of them, uh, one of them was Nikki's. So even if you eliminate Nikki's, you still have three showing significance and uh, three showing no significance. With really the the difference on the ones that were in the negative not being high enough to offset the the positive results. Right. So, is anybody surprised by this? 
I guess I'm not real surprised to find that there's a difference between 120 and 170 degrees uh, with hops. I mean, it, it, it kind of stands to reason when we all know that uh, as the temperature goes up, the oils uh, volatilize off more. Is that a real world word? Uh, you know, the, you lose more oils. So I guess I'm not real surprised at the results. Are you, Marshall? No. no uh, well, in terms of the results... Uh, being significant, it doesn't surprise me. Um, in, in fact, I wouldn't doubt if re, you know future uh, reiterations of of this variable, which we're going to do at Brewlosophy, and I'm sh- you know other people are going to do as well, don't produce significant results. And I and I think the uh, just to go back to the data reporting on the data, I think the best way to do it is to report with without kind of give people this uh, mm-hmm. you, you know every all of that information and to see that that regardless uh, when you remove that significant outlier it still pops up uh, or pops below 0.05 I think is pretty cool. That that seems to speak you know. Yeah, right. To, yeah. So to now so let- Let's look at let's look at the the other side of this. Uh, so it's pretty obvious that there is a difference. Uh, was there any kind of trend in in which one people preferred or or what they noticed uh, in terms of the effects of the difference? Well, just in looking through the results, so yeah, I agree. This is like one of those things where it's like, okay, great, the technique makes a difference. We're not surprised by that. Now, does it make an organic organolectic difference that people prefer? And if you look through the results, the trends that I noticed, there was a lot more reporting that the 170 sample was more bitter and the 120 example was more aromatic, but I also saw the exact opposite reporting. (laughs) So it almost seems to me that like, this is one of those things where I don't think people have an adequate way of describing the difference that they're detecting. Yeah, or I was I was going to comment on the the just the possibility that maybe you know what we perceive in our mouths um, is just different. It's subjective, and we all experience things differently. Just this weekend, uh, I was I went to the Warthogs Brew Club meeting here in Fresno, and uh, the host, uh, his wife, is a biology teacher, and so she had those little paper strips that have the. Mm-hmm. That if you know if you're like a not a super taster, but if it's only a few people have the ability to to taste whatever chemical is on there, and everyone else just tastes paper. And I thought, man, I mean, when you're tasting beer, how many? And I, uh, by the way, I can only taste paper. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but which is probably for the you know I I eat broccoli and I enjoy it. So, but but it makes me wonder, you know, what other stuff in beer is like that? And how does even just that one genetic difference cause us to subjectively experience what we're tasting differently? Yeah, right. So, so then it's, it's pretty obvious that there is a difference between whirlpooling at 120 and 170, but which method you prefer is going to depend a lot on your particular physiology. Is that kind of where we're at? Uh, well, I think preference is going to be physiology combined with, with psychology and preference and just what you enjoy. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'll take an English brown ale over a double IPA all day long, but, I, but I'm in the minority there. That, you know, and so just because I prefer that to me, whether you prefer the beer that was uh, uh, Whirlpool hopped at, at 170 versus 120 is almost the same thing. I mean, they're, if they're different, then then it's just preference at play. And what is preference but this kind of weird blend of physiology and psychology? Yeah, yep. yeah, very, I agree. Very, and Spoken like a true psychologist, Marshall. 
Oh man. (laughs) But you know, I, I think there's also, I think there's a level of expectation maybe in this. Sure. Yeah. Where, you know, we're used to that hop, hot character. Yeah, you know, being a certain thing, you know, that bitterness and certain oils being there, certain oils not being there. And, you know, this 120 line of business sort of gets us into that weird world where it's not quite the same flavors as dry hopping, but it's not the same flavors as these hot hop additions. So maybe maybe it's just, you know, hey, this is different to me and different is new and different is scary and I don't like new and scary. So that's another possible impact. Yeah, I, I suppose so. So, so let's uh, let's try and uh, wrap this up and uh, see what conclusions we can draw. Marshall, what would you say about this overall? I think overall, um, uh, it, w- when you've got such a drastic difference in temperature as you do with a fifty degree difference, right, one twenty to one seventy, it would look mm-hmm. to me like like uh, that variable does have a noticeable or distinguishable impact on the uh, quality of the finished beer. And whether or not you like it depends on a number of things. Absolutely. Right. And, and right. what's, inter- what's interesting to me is that in our, um, we recently published a, a similar experiment at different, uh, we use different temperatures though. I believe it was 170 versus flame out. So almost boiling. Mm-hmm. And, and that one, uh, the results were not significant at all. So yeah, well, I, I that, can see that, that might make some sense. Well, because 170 is pretty near the isomerization temperature. So, uh, you know, right. you, you know, there's not going to be a lot of difference between flame out. Drew, what, what's your takeaway on the whole thing? Uh, I my takeaway is I think it's something interesting to play with. I, I totally want to try and try and do this because uh, this might be another way to push some more of those oils that we, that we're all trying to gather up. And I wonder if it has a real difference with some of the newer hops. You know, some of these really hop oil heavy uh, type yeah. hops. Uh, in comparison to say some older school hops, this one, this recipe for the most part, our brewers kind of stuck to the same uh, recipe and used uh, Centennial uh, pretty heavily. But Centennial is a fairly old hop and not in the same sort of new category. Like you know, maybe take some of that uh, 007 that we were just talking about and try some of that with this. And I know that uh, uh, Jim had wanted to do this experiment initially as 120 whirlpool versus dry hop. And so we may have to revisit that and try that and see if there's a difference there. Yeah, and I think I think you're making a really good point about uh, is it hop variety dependent uh, to some degree? You know, that's a that's a real interesting thing to think about. If uh, say you have a hop that is heavier in oils and maybe you know some oils more than others, are you going to be getting a totally different uh, different effect out of it? So very yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I, yeah, yeah, right, man. Because uh, you know, the, it seems like the total oil content and the balance of the different oils in the hops could totally throw this in a different direction. So I guess we're going to have to do this over and over again with every hop variety out there, right? <laughs> yeah, there we go. So it's that <laughs> science. That's, that's yep. <laughs> okay, so there you go, people. Uh, there does seem to be a difference between uh, putting your whirlpool hops in at 170 degrees Fahrenheit versus 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Which one you prefer is going to be up to you and uh, maybe even up to the variety of hop you use. So, uh, Marshall, thanks a whole bunch for joining us today, man. It's always great to have you here. Yeah, my pleasure. Fun to be around. Cool.
Yep, that's right. And some of the comments from the tasters and stuff. So, okay, time for a short break. We'll be right back. Despite how crazy fast I talk, and really I'm trying to slow down whenever I'm doing this, uh, I'm actually from the great state, great in quotes, of Florida, where the normal speed of talking is a little less frantic because it's just too damn hot to talk fast or do anything fast. So for me, you can blame the speed and the mumbling on growing up down south in a New England family uh, with a sort of southern New England patois. Uh, made worse by a collegial stint in Boston. So, for some reason, nearly 20 years on the West Coast has not uh, broken that jumble mess of my voice. And, of course, it's funny to me because we're working in a medium that rewards uh, proper elocution. But regardless, Florida is, by all accounts, a good time state with a beach party vibe uh, that's been carefully cultivated by a group of people who have moved there just before you did, and consider you an interloper. It's a great many things, but a craft beer destination, it has never been until the past few years. And so the scene that I know best, and the scene that I think gets the most attention outside of the state, is that over in the Tampa Bay area, where my sister lives and my brother-in-law. Uh, and, mo- and many of you guys out there will identify that with Cigar City Brewing Company. Now, being a Saison and farmhouse guy, uh, I tend to identify more with the, the long-tenured Saint Somewhere uh, out of Tarpon Springs, and that's Bob Sylvester, and he does all these great and weird and wacky farmhousey wild beers. Uh, but regardless, Tampa and that whole area has a very vibrant brewing scene, uh, both in the professional sense and in the amateur sense. Uh, it's come a long, long way since the heady days of touring the Anheuser-Busch plant that was attached to the Busch Gardens theme park uh, there in Tampa. So on a recent trip, uh, sorry, <clears throat> on a recent trip there, I spent some time at a local homebrew shop slash nanobrewery uh, called Southern Brewing and Winemaking in the Seminole Heights neighborhood of Tampa. It's run by Brian and Kelly Finstermacher. The store has grown out of their long-term involvement uh, in the craft beer scene, and a desire to get back to something simple. I really couldn't resist the opportunity to interview Brian as uh, we sat in his nanobury, just to talk about the sort of crazy, almost German-inspired brewing regimen that uh, he and his brewers have created that allow him to keep 24 taps in this homebrew shop slash nanobury shop tap room, uh, flowing with different beers a whole giant, crazy, jumbled variety of beers. Uh, And he's doing it all on three boil kettles from Blickman. So I had to take a moment to to interview him. I think we're looking at uh, about 45 minutes, 50 minutes of uh, talk, but there's a lot of material here. Brian has a very long history in the craft brewery scene, uh, both as a brewer at a big craft brewery, 
a distributor of ingredients and parts. And then finally, as a homebrew shop owner and now as an anabrewery operator. So really, I think you can all learn something from uh, talking to Brian and his uh, brewers. So why don't we go ahead and uh, take a trip to Tampa, Florida and enjoy a beer. All right, so uh, we are currently at Southern Brewing and Winemaking, uh, and I think this is still Seminole Heights in Tampa, Florida. Southeast Seminole Heights, but yeah, Seminole Heights area. Uh, south, uh, southeast by Northwest Seminole Heights or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's getting very specific about their neighborhoods these days. Sure. And so, uh, kind of a cool thing here, and the reason why I'm talking to you guys from uh, here, this is both a homebrew store and an anniversary. And I'm sitting here with Brian. So, Brian, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Oh, hey, I'm Brian Fenstermacher, owner. Uh, my wife and I started this business about uh, the homebrew shop about eight years ago and the brewery about four years ago. So, this is kind of our fun, you know, enjoying life, uh, uh, brewing beer, and uh, yeah, just kind of playing. <laughs> well, and you, definitely, you definitely do seem to have a place set up here. So, uh, all right, let's uh, start as I always start my interviews with uh, mm-hmm. anybody. What is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word, probably going to be f-. I say f- all the time. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, I have a habit with that one. So. All right, so I think this is the fifth or sixth interview I've done with Brewers, uh-huh. and I think so far we're still batting a 1,000 on Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, when things, see yeah, a lot of times, and uh, well, mostly in breweries, it's troubleshooting things that go wrong. It's rarely do you have a good day, so um, when you do, it's great, but yeah. There's a, there's a good bit of frustration at times. So, perfect word for that. Now, you didn't just come didn't come straight out of the womb into owning a homebrew shop. Uh, how did how'd you how'd you get to here? Uh, yeah, it was quite a path. Um, uh, right out of college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, was looking for something in sales and just wasn't enjoying whatever where I was interviewing, what I was looking at. And uh, it was Christmas. I got a book on homebrewing. I got a six-pack of Hurricane Reef Lager and a, um, another book about beer. And I just started reading it, and I decided I wanted to start homebrewing. So from there, we went home. And uh, I guess stepping back, I did go to high school and college in Northern California, up in Sonoma County. So, And I was honestly, honestly more into the wine scene at that time than the beer. Beer was just starting to uh, come around. Uh, Sierra Nevada was... You know, the, the one craft beer you found in most bars, and uh, which was fantastic. Um, but it was moving to the East Coast in Atlanta where I wanted to start homebrewing. And about the third batch in, I figured this would make a good career for me. So I uh, got my first job volunteering at Atlanta Brewing Company, uh, packaging on the line. And, um, yeah, that was the beginning. So had a eight-year brewing career. Uh, from there, I managed uh, Atlanta Brewing Company, became the uh, vice president of operations finance there. And then wife and I wanted to move somewhere nicer. We picked uh, Tampa. So uh, came here and managed Ybor City Brewing. Um, it was the, uh, the brewmaster and also the finance manager there. And it was there that I left to start a brewery, and uh, which kind of evolved into a uh, distribution company. So that took an interesting turn. But... Um, yeah, so I had a, I was selling to breweries and uh, homebrew shops, all the grain and hops throughout the southeast. And uh, from there, company uh, Brewer Supply Group uh, offered to buy it off us. And that's when I was able to do what I wanted to do all along, and that have a small brewery and a homebrew shop. So kind of a lot going on there, but in a nutshell, that's the path. So you kind of bounced around into a, a bunch of different corners in the industry all around mm-hmm. here in the southeast. I did, yeah. 
right. So when did you first discover beer? Was it that her, that, that reef lager? First discover beer? Yeah, good beer. Good beer. Oh, Jesus. Uh, God, I'd say it was uh, with my stepfather, uh, Hans, uh, when I was 13. Um, uh, he's a uh, German. Uh, my parents separated, and um, uh, Hans and my mom got together, and uh, the Germans have a very different, um, you know, I guess, uh, culture when it comes to beer. And so I was drinking at a very early age, and he taught me the appreciation of beer, and I uh, spent a couple months in Germany when I was 15, and that's when I really got into the uh, Pilsners. So I uh, just kind of evolved from there. I would have never guessed somebody named Hans was German. <laughs> Not at all. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the setup that you have here, because this, okay. is, this to me is fairly, uh, fairly unique, and one of the things I really wanted to like, uh, get to the listeners. So on, you know, to the left of us in the, in the main shop, mm-hmm. you have a full, full-on homebrew supply store, go buy your ingredients, tons of grains and, and hops and all the, all the goodies that everybody needs. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. there's this magical dividing line, suddenly you hit a bar, and now mm-hmm. we're in a, a, yet another part of the building, and we're magically looking at a bunch of uh, barrel-sized uh, barrel uh, kettles that is your brewery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how does that, how does that all work for people? Because I mean, like you know, you've got obviously the homebrew business, but now you've got this fully operational bar. And how many beers do you have on tap right now? We have thirty two house beers on tap, and we also have a wine making license as well. So we do ciders and meads, and uh, uh, wife likes to do piments. So yeah, we can do it all here. Well, and I think uh, kombucha as well. Kombucha, yes. Our shop manager is big into kombucha, so that's kind of his project. So, in other words, your, your tap room is really kind of a one-stop shop for learning about fermented products. Yeah, it's it's our our I guess our slogan from way back when is uh, um, uh, brewer's playground. It's a it's a place where you know, we do commercial um, we have a commercial setup, but yet it's one that um, is based off a lot of homebrew equipment. So somebody at home can put together a system like we have. But we also have all the controls of a um, of a strong commercial brewery, um, so we we're kind of uh, you know, we incorporate the home brewing into our commercial side. So it's um, so it's nice when uh, home brewers come back here and see what we're doing. It's a good educational deal, and plus we use all the ingredients and all the equipment that we sell in the shop. So uh, we're able to give good advice and actually have experience with it as opposed to you know the, the average home brew shop guy who's like yeah it's mold. Oh yeah, yeah, and also we share all of our recipes, all our recipes, all our techniques. So, if any brewer wants to duplicate anything we have on tap, we're very you open go. with that. Here you go, this is absolutely. Well, I was gonna say, so you know, we're sitting across from what is this like uh, eight Blickman Boilermaker barrel-sized kettles with the, the big burners and everything's on stands and wheels and all very mobile and fluid and. One of the things when we were talking the other day that I thought was uh, absolutely fascinating was your whole process when you're brewing in here. Because, again, you're nano size, you've got 32 taps at your face, so that means you're brewing you know, pretty well continuously. Mm-hmm. But you're doing, with, what, three batches a day and with some sort of unique scheduling system? Yeah, it's something that evolved quite a bit. Um, and uh, one of my big focuses uh, with the breweries I was managing was uh, efficiency. Um, just to, how can we do more, faster, better, you know, higher quality, and, um, and just be more productive. So being a nano, it's, it's, it's tough to be efficient brewing such small batches, but um, 
it's something we work very hard to to be able to brew a lot of batches um, in a relatively short amount of time and uh, still have the efficiency but the variety. So this setup as you see it now, it's, it's yeah, evolved tremendously over the last few years, but uh, it's kind of been like this for about a year now. We, uh, we really have it dialed in and uh, it flows beautifully. So we're basically a six vessel uh, brew house. We have uh, three um, mash tuns, three kettles, uh, two hot liquor tanks uh, with on-demand hot water um, that's uh, um, RO filtered. And so basically we can mash in every hour on the hour uh, as many brews as we want. So three is uh, comfortable for one brewer. And for a period there, we were doing up to uh, six, eight brews in, um, in one day. So that, gets, uh, that can get a little hectic, but uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And to see it, see it in action, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Well, I was going to say, I think one of the things, I'm, I'm used to when you look at craft breweries and, or other brewers and they get big enough where they have to start worrying about multiple brews in a day, mm-hmm. you know, they're very much doing shift brewing, right? So, yeah, I've got one brewer dedicated for eight hours to one particular batch of beer, mm-hmm. you know, and he may be cleaning up and setting up for the next uh, next batch, so the next brewer comes in and can get started and keep moving. But this is, I think, the first time I've ever seen somebody doing sort of continuous brewing operations with one with one person on, on a very tight regimen that, that you seem to have. Like, you have a whole dance card system here on a clock. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, can you describe that for folks? Oh, sure. So, um, so again, this is something that's that's really evolved. We, uh, we really try to push the limits on how much we can do in a day. And each time we um, developed a new system and then we looked to add more to it, that system didn't necessarily work anymore. So we've really honed into a very simple setup uh, that, that works beautifully. And it, it kind of evolved from um, one of my just earlier memories uh, when I started brewing was my it was my first day in the brew house at Atlanta Brewing Company. Uh, the, the brewmaster there, Dave Hagamus, um, was teaching me how to brew. And it was just a very simple uh, single infusion, um, two-vessel brew house. And I got so confused, overwhelmed with everything that was going on. We had a hot water tank, a cold water tank, and to me, and the mash tun, the kettle, all this going on, and I just couldn't, uh, couldn't quite um, pull it together. So he pulled me aside and taught me just a, a, a flow, looking at the brew house, looking at each vessel, and just thinking what needs to be done or anything needs to be done, and just walk through everything and relax and um, just yeah, kind of compartmentalize what's going on. And uh, like I mentioned uh, yesterday or the other day, uh, I'm also a pilot. And that's very much a part of flying is being able to scan your instruments in a very efficient way and to get a get a quick grasp of what's going on so that you can focus on the more important things of flying the plane. Um, so we've come up with a system where the brewer can take one glance at the clock and with different uh, stickers and tags on that clock, he can see where he is with every vessel. And um, so, for example, in the, uh, the 9 o'clock, we've got a few different stickers there. Uh, that's the time that we're mashing in the next batch. And then um, come around to the 2 o'clock, the sticker there. We're going to remix that mash. And then on the 5, we're going to uh, do our pre-boil off, which is simply uh, just running off into a bucket, uh, getting the chunkier stuff out and then uh, pouring it back in. And then on the six, we, uh, we start the actual Horloff. Um, and then on the back up to the 10, we start uh, running to the kettle. 
So you can see it's it's right now it's um, you know, the minute hand is between the seven and eight. We know there's nothing to be done for the next uh, eight minutes, and that's when we can clean or prep for the next stage. So uh, when we get to the kettle additions, also we have color-coded stickers that uh, once the kettle is full, we load the clock with those additions. And so again, a quick glance, you can see uh, see what's happening. One of the things I don't think we've communicated to everybody is that all these different kettles are all different color-coded with uh, the tape. So, you know, we've got a black kettle, we've got a uh, blue kettle, and a yellow mm-hmm. kettle, right? Did I have that right? Yeah. Hey, yeah. Look at that. We're in the system. So, <laughs> so um, and, and you're using different uh, those different colors on just a regular old analog wall clock mm-hmm. to help, you know, give a, a quick visual reminder to, to whoever's in the brewery as to what chain is having something happening to it next, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, um um, I, I looked online too, and, and, and I, we tried many different types of clocks. I tried uh, you know, a, a kitchen you know, wound clock thing. Uh, we ended up having six of those clocks with stickers all over them, and that got to be way too complicated. And then the clocks weren't working. Some were slow, some were fast. Uh, so it's the idea is to, um, uh, in a sense, make it foolproof. There's a lot going on in here, and especially uh, training a brewer on this system, it's it takes a considerable amount of time um, for it to become natural. But the biggest fear I've had with a setup like this are mistakes, uh, putting the uh, um, you know, hops in the wrong kettle, and you know when when things are getting hectic, if something's not going right, you stick a mash, um, and, and then you're rushing to put a hop addition in. There, that's when mistakes happen. So we've come up with color-coded cups, also color-coded sections on our prep table, and also the kettles. So you know the blue cup uh, goes into the blue kettle. And they're also all numbered with the addition as well. And the, the stickers on the clock, uh, the colors for the, uh, for the kettle editions are also numbered. So you know you're grabbing number one hop edition and the yellow kettle or whatever it might no, be. Number one blue, number, yep. number two yellow. Exactly. So all that is prepped. Uh, um, as, the, as the day goes on, it gets more hectic as you, you know, on a three brew day, you have three brews in process for a period of time. So all this prep work is done uh, before you get to that stage. And um, uh, so when it is getting busy, things flow very naturally. Well, so now, I mean, this obviously, it's a, a, a very beautiful kind of complicated dance that you have going on. And, of course, whenever I see something that's beautifully complicated like that, mm-hmm. I wonder, what's been the worst thing that's happened that's gone wrong? The worst thing, uh, well, talking about the kettle additions, uh, we had three batches, uh, three different IPAs, and all three hop additions got mixed up. So wrong additions, wrong kettles. Uh, our, our brewer had a bad day that day, let's just say. So those three batches were, uh, they, they turned out all right, but of course we had to call them something else. And um, um, yeah, not too bad. Now that's, yeah, I'd probably say now thinking about it, uh, um, we did have a day, actually I was brewing that day, and it's kind of a, a chain reaction. Uh, the, the first brew uh, was stuck, and everything went downhill from there. So I just made mistake after mistake, trying to correct a prior mistake, and I got to the uh, third mash in, totally botched that. I, I forget what I did there, um, and I honestly just gave up. I dumped all three batches right there, gave, <laughs> shut it down, and uh, we came back the next day and started over. So, 
And that was, that was quite some time ago, but and, and when things like that happen, we, we take a look at you know, what went wrong, um, how could we, you know, how can we prevent that from happening again? And you know, we learned from our mistakes, and, and we made a number of adjustments. Um, and that, that seems very much like a like a NASA way of thinking. You know, or NASA, whenever they have a problem, they think it's the the thing that went wrong is something about the process. So how do we fix the process to make? Mm-hmm. Or or what other controls do we need to add in? And if you got to be careful not to add too much because then you can overcomplicate things. And, uh, and and this is certainly the simplicity of it is what makes it work. Um, so like that with the clock, I don't think I, I explained is that uh, we have our process down to where everything happens at the same time um, in the hour with each batch. So we always mash in at the same time on the clock uh, for every batch. And I wouldn't say every batch. There is flexibility built into it to where... If we do want to do a longer rest with the beer, we can make that the first batch and just give it a little extra time in the beginning. Um, and also, uh, if, if we have a batch that might stick on us, uh, we save that for the last batch so it doesn't you know, jam up the time. system. Exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, also, there's various equipment. Uh, we've, we've, we've worked on a lot on um, very hop-heavy on our beers, so we've really worked on... Um, uh, finding equipment, developing things that uh, you know, keep the um, uh, the counterflow chillers from getting clogged and you know, preventing issues with uh, subsequent batches. So that's on a, on a system like this, on this size too. It's it was a challenge just finding equipment that works for us on a commercial um, in a commercial environment because uh, really. The smallest systems out there, commercially built, uh, they're designed for you know, three plus barrels. Um, so, this whole setup was was something that we, you know, we developed just by playing with over time. Well, and I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I think like even now, even with the rise of the nanos that are out there, mm-hmm. you're still seeing. I think most of it's like, oh, barrel and a half, but it's also very much geared towards. A traditional shift brewing model, mm-hmm. as opposed to what you have going here, where you have where you have this sort of flexibility built in and the ability to be able to daisy chain batches in a way that, like I said, I've never really seen before. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's like a yeah, a, what you'll find in a very large uh, uh, brewery. We we brought it down to this uh, to the one barrel size, and something else is we're we're really we're not interested in in getting to a larger brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we grow is just by adding taps and adding more fermenters. So, the, and, and does the beer uh, the beer uh, uh, never leaves the premises, right? Does it, it does not. No, no. So we don't distribute. We never intend to. Um, for my wife and I, we had the distribution company uh, became a, a a pretty large operation, and it was pretty much running our lives. And uh, when we're given the opportunity to sell that and really do what we wanted to do, what we enjoyed. And, and for me, that's playing in the brewery. It's uh, so many fun things to do about it that, uh, with it, um, that we were able to make this um, almost a, uh, a retirement-type business. So, yeah, I never look to retire, but I, I do like to have fun. And there's so many aspects of this of this model that uh, that, that I I can come in and tinker with and uh, just enjoy. Okay. So distribution does not, you know. There's nothing fun about that to me, so well, yeah, we won't well, do that. The, once the beer leaves here, it's no longer part of your playground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that seems to be what's important. It is. I got into brewing just for the passion of uh, of making beer, of, of tinkering, playing, trying different things, and 
uh, I definitely got away from that with the uh, the larger breweries I was running. It's it became um, uh, a job. A job. Very good. And <laughs> it was actually on the packaging line um, at Ebor City Brewing where we used to we used to actually erect our six packs and our, our cartons and. Um, we had a lot of time there to just sit and chat and, you know, kind of mindless type work. And uh, I talked about this model that I, that I wanted of, of, of exactly what we're doing, of very small batches, a uh, ton of variety, a homebrew shop. And it was, it was very much like a bar I saw in uh, Sonoma County, where it was a bookstore and a bar, and you can just kind of wander around and, you know, see very interesting things. So. I think if I had a bookstore and a bar in one place, I don't think I'd ever leave. <laughs> That'd be pretty damn perfect for me. Hmm. All right. Um, so, well, I was going to say, one other thing that I think that's also great is, I mean, since you are a nano and you do have this giant 32-tap list out there, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you know, when you're in, in like, these big uh, breweries, you know, you have that whole problem of consistency and brands that you're managing and, and your product lines have to stay uniform all the way. So, like, even when you're talking about your IPA fiasco of different hop, hop kettle editions ending up in different kettles, mm-hmm. it's it's not it doesn't seem like a, as big of a crisis as it would be if you're, you know, trying to brew, you know, a flagship IPA or something. You know? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's it's, uh, um, and we we do have a very dialed in consistent process. So there there are our core beers. They they are extremely consistent batch to batch, and also we turn them very quickly. So they're they're also very fresh. Um, but if, if a batch just isn't quite right, something went wrong. You know, if if it's still good, we'll uh, we'll call it something else and um, yeah, still drink it. There you go. Which beer do you find yourself longing to drink that you don't think people are drinking enough of? That I'm longing to drink. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um. Jeez. As in. Uh, I guess I'm confused with the question. Well, which so like, are are there things out there that you wish uh, that that you enjoy drinking that you wish other people enjoy drinking as much? Because right now we seem to be very much in this sort of the IPA of everything. World. Oh, okay, yeah, that's probably not not very popular, but I, I do um, enjoy a uh, a lighter beer, a uh, very light pilsner, even a um, on the low carb side. Um, it's I'm I'm very much into. Um, uh, athletics and it's 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 extremely hot here and uh, you know a nice ice cold um, lighter beer after workout is is fantastic so very refreshing. Well, and and for our listeners who aren't aware, you know, like I said, we're in Tampa, Florida right now. It's the day after Christmas, and it's I think what, the, almost ninety degrees. Yeah, the the highs uh, the highs in the upper seventies today, and of course it has that lovely Florida humidity. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely hot. But uh, by the way, this puts you actually in very very good company. Because uh, I think we did an interview with Sean O'Sullivan of Twenty First Amendment, mm-hmm. and his answer to that question was Coors Light. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's we we have a um, a low carb beer that we're working on. Uh, it's it's our Florida Pills. Um, it's generic name now. We just we haven't doubted it in yet. But it is a um, uh, it's about uh, three point five uh, grams of carbs, and um, it's. Trying to think what the alcohol is about, yeah, 4.3, 4.4%, and it's it's pretty much modeled after the Coors Light uh, Miller Light. The, the card numbers that you're talking about, are you sending are you are you sending things out to lab for analysis or is that calculated? It's just a calculated, yeah. So it's close to that, but I'm not worried about the exact number. The, the FDA is not coming pounding on your door. No, no, no. Hmm. Right. Uh, what's the most unusual beery thing you've done? 
beery thing. Yeah. Either brew or, uh, well, I mean, let's face it, opening up a homebrew shop slash hammer brewery is very unusual. Uh-huh. But, uh, so, yeah, let's say uh, a beer thing. What's the most unusual uh, beer you've made? Unusual beer. My gosh. Um, I'll have to think about that for a minute. Probably say not one particular beer, but we, we, we have beers that we enjoy treating quite a bit. And uh, one of our most populars was our prickly pear Berliner Weiss, uh, which we call our, it's our raised bungalow. It's, it started off as our bungalow, but then I wanted to hire alcohol, so now it's the raised bungalow. And uh, Seminole Heights um, uh, bungalows are quite popular, so that's where that came from. Um, but it's uh, the prickly pear, it's funny seeing all these larger breweries now coming out with prickly pear, you know, sours. And um, I, I wouldn't say we were the first with that, but uh, we did win the... Um, um, uh, best of show at the uh, Best Water Beer Championships last year. So there were uh, 450 entries. So that one did well. It just it works worked out beautifully. Nice pink beer, so good manly beer, and uh, pretty tasty. But also our, our Moonraker, it's our Imperial Stout. Uh, we play quite a bit with that one. Uh, a lot of uh, pepper, uh, hot pepper uh, treatments, um, and uh, a lot of your traditionals as well. But yeah, something something along those lines. Nothing too crazy. Well, I was going to say, I had the, the raised bungalow the other day, but not with the prickly pear. Mm-hmm. I just did that with the classic uh, uh, Woodruff in it, and that was a really nice, uh, really nice, like, uh, lightly sour uh, butter, so that was good. That's one of the beers I'm, I'm more, I guess, uh, I would say proud of, but uh, I think we do a really good job with that beer. And, and again, just like our process, just our overall brewing process, that's something that um, many different techniques to make a, mm-hmm. make a sour and we have come up with our own, uh, somewhat unique, that uh, I think works extremely well, and we get very, very consistent results on it. Would you be willing to share the process, or is that? Yeah. Oh, it's it's it, we do sour the, the we do the lacto phase uh, in the fermenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also not only do we use the um, uh, the Y yeast, uh, I think it's the what the fifty three thirty five. Um, but uh, and this wasn't our idea, but uh, we put in a handful, a measured amount of um, Pilsner malt, mm-hmm. and we found that that is extremely important. Um, well, we've done all kinds of tests with, without, and you know, different quantities. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's sealed in the fermenter. Uh, we do it at 90 degrees. Uh, the problem, what I didn't like about the kettle is, well, one, you're tying up the kettle, but you just don't have the controls. We can keep a, a very precise temperature. Um, in the fermenter and also uh, sealed off. We, we found even our non-pressurizable fermenters were giving us uh, very consistent results. Um, and also we go much longer than your typical 24 or 48 hour rest and um, our pHs are consistently coming down in about a 3.1, 3.0. So it's, it's, it's very nice tartness compared to a lot. A lot of them are uh, others I see out there are more like in the three four three three, but it's it's a pretty significant difference mm-hmm. that that extra drop. Um, and then uh, so it's taking us uh, about five days uh, during that phase, and then we'll reboil and um, pitch um, ten fifty six, uh, a heavy dose. And you know, read about the uh, the low pH and the yeast not being able to handle it. Plus we have a higher alcohol uh, berliner, and uh, it it works extremely well. Cool. Yeah, and that's kind of cool. That uh, yeah, it seems to be a lot of stuff out there about keeping lactobacillus and oxygen apart from each other. Mm-hmm. It really helps uh, to avoid a lot of the uh, rotten corpse type effects that you can get. And 
Yeah, so th that's kind of cool. Into the fermenter for five days at 90, mm -hmm. and that, that really gives you that acid. Yep, yep. So we done, and we go into the fermenter at a, uh, we're looking at just a standard like 5.2, 5.3 pH, so we're not we're not using excessive amount of acid malt or, or, or just acid additions to um, to sour that way, so it's a, it's a very natural, very cool souring process. All right. And now we get to my favorite question. Uh-oh. Omitting the word balance. Uh-huh. Describe your brewing philosophy. Oh, omitting word the balance. Um, have fun. Do stuff that hasn't been done before. Um, uh, obviously, I've talked a lot about efficiency. Um, but... Uh, Creating a work environment that is, am I allowed to use a lot of words or is this a description? <laughs> you can, you, you just can, as long as I don't say balance. As long as you don't say the word balance. Yeah, this, this, this whole business, it's, it's, it's about having fun. And uh, I, I've, I've approached everything I've done in my life um, uh, with the question of, is it going to be fun? And that's, that's where we're out of college. Um, the career path I was looking at, just, just there was nothing fun about that. And um, um, that's probably why I graduated school with no idea what I wanted to do, because I was having too much fun at school, not thinking about other things. But that's why brewing was so interesting to me. It's, it's I, who I am as a person, I, I, I like finance, I like numbers. Um, uh, so my, my degree is in accounting, although I never wanted to be an accountant. Uh, but that's what got me my real break at, a, at Atlanta Brewing Company. Um, I was part of the, uh, uh, the, the team working with Anheuser-Busch. We were actually, Atlanta Brewing, when I, when I got there, was um, uh, about, to be, uh, part, about to partner with Anheuser-Busch. Um, and this was after the, um, the Red Hook deal was done. Atlanta Brewing was going to be next, and then Widmer Brothers. But uh, so I did a lot of work on the brewery, and then worked with the uh, um, AB executives um, to to try to get the help with the deal. But uh, anyway, it ended up falling through. Um, but uh, I, I got into brewing because it was just fun, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. And at the point at Atlanta Brewing Company, where I did everything I felt I could do, and it was, I was getting a little bit bored, that's when we moved down here and had new challenges. And, um, and uh, there was a point there too that I wanted to start my own brewery and that's when I uh, nearly par partnered with a Shipyard to open a brewery in St. Petersburg. Um, and after I left my position with Ybor City Brewing, um, my money partner backed out and I was left without a job. So, but I was also going to do a, a small distribution company um, through the help of um, Alan Pugsley was good friends with Ian Ward. Not, I'm sorry, not Ian Ward with um, um, uh, William Crisp, and I was going to start distributing uh, crisp malt in the southeast. Um, so I went ahead and started doing that, and uh, that evolved into a much bigger business and I never intended to make it a business. I always wanted to have a small brewery. So um, when that became less fun, um, we had an opportunity to sell to, uh, well, to Ian Ward, Brewer Supply Group. Um, that's when we were able to come back to what we really, I always wanted to do and it's exactly this. So I guess my overall philosophy, coming back to your question, is, is do what's fun. And to me, uh, 32 taps out there and uh, pretty unique uh, 
fun system is, is, is all that to me. And I have a fantastic uh, brewer um, who does very well on this system, and he's also very creative. So he, uh, he gets to basically play in here every day. Now, I do want to say for the record, I think that's the first time I've ever heard anybody use the words fun and efficiency in the same sentence. <laughs> well, that's, that's how my mind has always worked. And uh, with all the breweries I was with, um, production was my, my real passion. And you know, running the packaging lines and just the entire brewery, how everything works, what everybody does, uh, um, I find that... Um, you know, fascinating and enjoyable. But um, yeah, there are days with a lot of hard work, but um, when you can actually see this system run and knowing everything we went to to get to this stage, it's 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 fun to watch. Very cool. All right, uh, here we go. What common wisdom brewing practice do you think is wrong or people's concerns about are overinflated? I and, and this probably comes back to uh, I remember on a conference call uh, when with uh, when I sold the business to uh, Burr Supply Group I, I did have to uh, have to I enjoyed it worked for them for a couple of years so lots of conference calls and you know as we watched uh, all these nanos popping up we were you know, discussions on you know how do we you know how do we work with them so many small breweries that we just weren't used to. And you know, the comments flying around were that a, a nanobrewery cannot succeed. It just can't be efficient uh, enough to make money off of. And so I know a lot of nanobreweries out there that have been successful, but I think the more common trend is you don't start a nano with the intention of staying a nano. You start with the idea of growing into something much bigger. But um, I'd say we've done a very good job of uh, showing that you, you can be extremely efficient. And I think we're more efficient than some much larger breweries as far as man hours per, per barrel. Um, but uh, uh, consistency, quality, um, I, I think we have a, a more quality product than, uh, than a lot of the bigger breweries out there as well. Um, and uh, yeah, we will spend whatever needs to be spent as well to, to make sure that we do have the quality. and. Um, I, I, I think we've done it, and the model does work. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you definitely developed something interesting here, and it's true that a lot of nanos seem to be all about positioning themselves to go from one barrel to three barrels to seven barrels to 15 mm -hmm. barrels and, and that sort of growth, but you guys are, are proving that you can stay at your size and, and still actually make a comfortable go of it. Yeah, and I think we, um, when, when you talk a lot of uh, equipment manufacturers, they and you look at their on their websites, you know how to decide what size system is best for you, for your operation, and they talk about well, how many barrels do you want to make, and you know how many batches, and they they, they seem to want to get you into a bigger system um, than what what well might be be good for you. We backed into it from um, looking at you know, how many taps do we want to have, you know, how many different beers, and how often do we want to brew those, and how much beer do we really want to sell? How big do we want to get? And from that, we worked our way down to um, to this size system is ideal for us. And um, we may, yeah, some of our bigger sellers, you know, we may add a, a bigger fermenter. But this, you know, this brew house can, uh, uh, you know, we can fill a seven barrel fermenter in about the same time as a a brew on a seven barrel system. There you go. All right. So now, since you have the uh, 
the history with all the ingredients and just, uh, distribution and whatnot. And mm-hmm. of course, you also have the homebrew shop. That's going to be a very natural question for you, at least in my mind. Okay. Uh, what, uh, what is your favorite malt, your favorite hop, and your favorite yeast? Wow. Okay. Well, favorite malt's probably, I always come back to uh, Breeze Bondlander. I think that is a wonderful Munich malt, unlike any other out there. Um, of course, the Victory malt is nice. I'm very fond of the Breeze specialty malts, and always have been. Um, and then as, as far as uh, hop... Uh, it's, it's probably pretty popular one, but uh, I'd say Amarillo. And favorite yeast? Hmm. Oh, well, we use a lot of 1056, but that's not all that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. Uh, hey, hey, we built a whole industry off of off yeah, we have. 1056. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it works well, but... Um, uh, getting into pilsners, I would say the um, yeah, we do we do quite a bit of pilsners, uh, lagers, and so uh, what numbers? Was it the twenty three oh eight, the Munich lager? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorites. Yeah. Now, do, do you guys when you're doing your lagers? Uh, do you do like the traditional old school long lagering fermentation schedule, or have you been playing around with like the the newer things like the 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 speed lager type setups where? Yeah, uh, it's a different fermentation schedule on the yeast, and in theory, you can push the water out in about two weeks. No, we we're, we're never pressed for time on our beers, so I, I really haven't looked at any of the techniques. I know there's a well, the um, oh, I forget what the number is, but the strain of yeast that uh, I know a lot of the bigger breweries are using now that a an ale will ferment out in you know what three days, or able to crash it inside of three or four days. But that's that's. Never been a, a factor for us, so we have, we have plenty. Always have an excess of fermentation capacity, so that we can let beers uh, take their time. But for our lagers, uh, we will do some uh, decoction uh, schedule um, mashes or you know, step infusion. Uh, we do have that flexibility on the system, but um, uh, typically we're we're doing a standard, you know, uh, two to three week fermentation, uh, 50, uh, 48, 52 degrees, depending on the beer. And then lagering, um, we do have something that's, that, that is kind of unique. All of our beers are uh, conditioned in small horizontal tanks. And with that, um, our ales don't have to sit very long, but we don't, we don't filter anything. And all of our beers are, we, you know, competitions where we're always getting um, uh, remarks of the, uh, the, the brilliance of the uh, clarity, especially on our uh, Pilsners. Uh, so we'll let them sit for... Um, again, depending on them, if we do uh, an Oktoberfest, we'll let it sit for a few months. And uh, for our standard uh, regular pilsners, um, might be uh, three weeks, three to four weeks in the conditional. Well, I was going to say, your horizontal lagering tanks, uh, these are the 15-gallon corny kegs that are sitting behind us, right? Yep. With the mm-hmm. special valves on top. And... Yep. So we, we've modified the 15-gallon uh, the tanks, so two tanks uh, per, per batch. Uh, to where uh, basically pretty simple. We just uh, we bent the uh, the dip tubes so that the uh, gas in is you know at the top when it's laying down and the uh, uh, the product out is at the bottom. And we've also added a um, a uh, testing valve or testing port to um, the top of the uh, the lid. So we welded on a um, uh, what is it a half inch tri clamp fitting, and then we have the perlic. Uh, sample valve, so every every single tank is also uh, carb checked uh, with a uh, ZOM. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, 
you know, something that you find with nanos a lot is just very inconsistent, a lot of inconsistency in carbonation levels and um, over or under just a foaming mess at the bar. But um, every one of our beers is, is carved perfectly. It takes a lot of time to do that, but um, it's, it makes the bartenders happy and the beer just comes out the way where we want it to. Well, and yeah, but the better your carbonation is in terms of what you need for the front, then the less loss that you also have as well. Oh, absolutely. So sure. That's, a, that's another thing that people seem to ignore. Loss to us is, is a big deal. Yeah, such a small batch. Uh, yeah, every time we test a beer, we're losing uh, a pint and a half. And um, yeah, it's, it adds up. Yeah, so you, yeah, you guys, you guys have extra incentive to get your, your process dialed in. Absolutely. All right, and so uh, two uh, two more questions, and I think we can we, we can call it a day. Uh, do you have uh, other brewing thoughts that that we haven't touched on, like other things that you think it's important for people to, to think about? Uh, and as far as as far as what just. Um, uh, you know, brewing better beer, or would you say just yeah, process? Brewing brew, brew better beer. You know. I I'm I'm big on water chemistry. Um, the the water down here, I know a lot of brewers just use it as is. Might do some salt additions, but uh, uh, very big into uh, stripping it um, stripping it down with the RO filter. Uh, there was a period of time when we started out brewing that uh, uh, we did not have the filter. We were just uh, charcoal filtering. And we, we noticed a, a nice improvement on that. So um, I'd say water is important, and really there's nothing that isn't important. Um, and to me, it's it's having, coming back to the process of just having everything be dialed in all the way until it hits the pint, the pint glass, um, so that, you know, as we're developing new recipes, um, we're, we're, we're Putting what we're picturing in our mind into a a, 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 a system that uh, is going to give us the you know, do exactly what we intended to do. Uh, uh, just the thing about uh, all this conversation, mm. the, the summary of how it seems that that this is all working is that you've managed to meld together sort of that German obsession with process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and the, the German obsession with yeah making sure the correctness of the thing that's being done. With still the sort of the freewheeling spirit of flavor development that we expect out of uh, American and Belgian craft brewers. Absolutely. And, and something else that we have that I really didn't touch on is uh, you know, I very much look to my brewers uh, for that creative side because I, I am, I'm definitely much more of the process like we had talked about, but I, I look for brewers that have that creative side, that, that mind, similar, you know, looking at your book, similar to uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what you think, just trying all sorts of new, different stuff. And I, I leave a lot of that to them, but what I've given them that they don't necessarily have is the, the system and the process uh, to put it together on. Um, and all of our brewers have always uh, started out in our homebrew shop and that gives them a really unique edge over other brewers because in a homebrew shop, every day you're constantly hit with new questions. You're seeing, you're talking to brewers who are uh, very eager to share what they're doing that's different. Homebrewers are extremely creative people. And when you're exposed to that day in, day out, it, it really opens up your mind to, um, you know, to push the limits of, of what might be normal or uh, trying, trying new and different things. So Tyler, our head brewer, he's he spent um, 
think it was about two years in the shop before he started phasing into the brewery. Um, so he actually spends days in the shop too. If we're busy or something, he'll pop in there. Um, we also get ideas from our customers, uh, from our shop managers, like, hey, I heard this guy trying this, you know, we should do it. And, you know, we absolutely will. Well, that's great. Drawing, drawing in ideas from everywhere. Uh, yep. And some, and another benefit we have or that, that is unique is you know, we have 100 grains um, on the floor. And we also have, shoot, I don't know, what is it, 60 or so varieties of hops. Uh, we have pretty much every, every yeast there is from uh, Y Yeast and White Labs. So when my brewer is developing a new recipe, and we might be brewing it you know, tomorrow, he has all of those ingredients on hand at all times to, uh, to build his recipe. So unlike other, a lot of other brewers or breweries I worked with, you're, you, you kind of work with certain suppliers and you, you have certain malts that you have on hand if you're trying something new. And so you might tend to use what's convenient or there. Um, and, and most breweries also have space issues, so you know, they can't have everything in the world. Absolutely. And yep. You guys have turnover on your product anyway, so mm -hmm. you have a reason for having it here. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the, the really the nicest things that um, you know, Tyler has to work with is just the unlimited um, uh, options with, uh, with the supplies to choose from. Good. Uh, all right, last question. Okay. Uh, so obviously we spent a lot of time talking about beer, 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 and brewing. Uh, what is a non-beer thing that you find yourself obsessed with? Because uh, look, I mean, we all have other things that we're obsessed about, but we mm -hmm. only tend to talk about the beer. So let's talk something non-beer. So non-beer. Well, I've got a couple things, but I guess the uh, um, uh, the new thing for me is is uh, endurance uh, sports. Uh, so it was about a year ago, actually, I um, uh, started getting into running, which evolved into uh, triathlons. And so now I'm yeah, pretty, I'd say, obsessed with uh, yeah, running further, biking further, swimming longer. Um, yeah, it's good for, um, uh, really, I, I just find it, it's, I've never had something like that before where I can just go and just relax and, and clear my mind and um, those uh, those things do it for me. You know, flying has also been a big passion, but um, I'd say obsession-wise, yeah, that's probably it right now. So, well, it's a good thing that, uh, you know, that's been scientifically proven that beer is such a wonderful rehydrating beverage <laughs> after a long, intense workout. Mm -hmm. So now you have a supply for that as well. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Well, I, I can I can definitely say I'm I'm not the kind of guy to run very far, but I will run to the bar uh, at a moment's notice. <laughs> yeah, this is very very unusual for me. So uh, yeah, I was pretty much that guy running to the bar, and uh, um, uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, it was about a year ago. Just started dieting, and uh, so it's a little bit overweight, and yeah, it kind of worked for me. That, that never happens amongst brewers. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the brewing as a as a as a hobby and a trend and an industry. It's all filled with very skilled people. Right. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. all right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking uh, a little bit of time here on a, uh, on a nice Florida morning to talk. Right. Uh, and uh, really, guys, if you ever find yourself uh, over in southeast, northwest Seminole Heights, Tampa, Florida, uh, I would highly recommend uh, stopping by uh, Southern to check out their 32 taps of beer. Uh, it can't hard to go wrong in Tampa, which really is kind of the hub of Florida's craft beer scene. But this is definitely a great and unusual place to stop and really get a 
broad beer education. So thank you again. Very good. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Man, that was a, that was a really fascinating interview and kind of different in a way. I mean, one of the things that I found really fascinating was that Brian almost came to brewing because of of his love of numbers and finance. Uh, you know, he has a a huge resume and and a really interesting perspective on the whole thing. Yeah, and and for me, I think the reason I really wanted to talk to him and and really get it captured there was. That is the most massively sized nano I've ever seen in terms of variety. And then when I started to talk to him before I ever broke out the recorder and said, I must record this, he started telling me this whole that whole regimen thing that he has going, you know, the whole clock and the tape markers and everything else. And it sort of blew my mind because, and I, I say this in the interview, but it's very Germanic in terms of its sort of, you know, we have to do this now, you know, uh, timing, 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 and precision and all this. But he's using it in such a way to allow his brewers to create a really broad spectrum of flavors. So that's why I, I, I thought we definitely had to talk to Brian and have him on the show and give everybody a chance to learn from him, uh, spotlight some smaller people. And, of course, I suspect we'll be going back to the Tampa area, uh, maybe not immediately, but uh, in the near future to be able to capture even more of that scene because uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on down there. Yeah. Uh, he has a level of organization that is truly, truly impressive. I know I could certainly take a lesson from it. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, I think you could either call that impressive or terrifying <laughs> or terrifyingly impressive there you or go. impressively terrifying or one of those. So, Okay. Uh, we're going to take a little quick break to fill our beer glasses and we'll be back to answer some questions. We hope it's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay. This is the part where everybody sings beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. All righty, we're back, and it's question and answer time. The time when we uh, read the questions that you've sent in to us and see if we can come up with some sort of decent answers for you. The first one today comes from Steve Anderson on the Brews and Views Forum run by HBD. Steve says... On the subject of hops, there was some buzz a few years ago about toasting hops. I read some articles about it and some testimonials of what a fantastic effect it had that had been tea hopped. Do any commercial breweries use this process? Uh, last question first. Uh, none that I know of. Nor I. Uh, I I'm, I'm interested that... Uh, Steve says he's read some articles about it and some testimonials. The only time... I really read anything about it was uh, Charlie Papazian in Zymergy kind of had uh, a, an article where he was wondering what would happen if you toasted hops. But I have not heard any reports of anyone actually doing it. Uh, have you? Yeah, I haven't. I, I didn't get any. Uh, I didn't get any positive responses about the whole process because uh, my problem with it is. And uh, I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think it's a terrible idea. And, um, I and I'm the, you know, and I'm saying this as the guy who does 
strange things. I think it's a terrible idea because, uh, look, frankly, what you're doing is you're cooking off your essential oils. You're cooking off the things that, yeah. that are that are expressive about the hops. I don't really feel like you're going to get any sort of toasty, caramelly type notes because most of those melanoiny type flavors require sugars. And hops yeah, really and don't have sugars or complex carbohydrates in them to to become toasted. Uh, and they certainly don't have the proteins for it. So to me, the other reason why I'm kind of down on the whole idea is look at like any of the style guidelines out there for people who are saying, oh, if you want to brew a, a Lambic-y style beer, but you don't have a debittered aged hops, well, the thing to do is go take your hops and go toss them in the oven and let them, uh, right. let them toast for a while. So that, that to me just indicates immediately if people are actually doing that for Lambic purposes, I don't think I'm going to get anything I want in terms of a hoppy beer by doing this process. Yeah. To me, the question is, what's the real difference between toasting and over drying? I mean, I, I just don't see how it's even possible to toast hops with without ruining them. So anyway, Steve, there you go. That's our speculation. Well, and if you're out there, I, I was going to say, and I would say to Steve, uh, if you have links to these uh, art, uh, these testimonials that, that you're telling about in the question, you know, feel free to get back in touch with us because uh, we are not uh, we are not adverse to exploring the topic. Uh, we just don't buy it. Yeah, right. And that's what I was going to say. Um, if any of you out there have toasted hops and <laughs> have some comments about it, let us know. But be aware that we're going to grill you because we we don't think it works. <laughs> Uh, if you do think it works, let us know. Take issue with us. Okay, buddy. Next question is yours. All right. Next question comes from Tom Goodwin. It comes in from email. He emailed questions at pot. Uh, sorry. Question. Uh, yeah. All right. Our next question comes from Tom Goodwin, who emailed us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. And he said, I don't think this topic has been brought up yet, but apologies if it has. Uh, no apologies ever necessary. Repeated questions are good because it allows us to get it right at least once. Uh, I wanted to know what your respective opinions are on step mashing. Is it necessary? Is it making a tangible difference? Or is this another step in the process that, much like decoction mashing, is a tool that is no longer necessary due to the advancements in malting technology? I've been homebrewing for about 11 years now, and when I started, I remember hearing a little about step mashing, but it was still seen as pretty esoteric. With the recent expansion into electric homebrew rigs, it is now much easier for many of us to perform step mashing, myself included. I also recently had a quick talk with a professional brewer who told me to avoid it, and that the enzymatic activity between 147 to 153 degrees Fahrenheit is relatively the same, and I would get much better results targeting a single infusion mash. Alright, Tom, that's a good question. Step mashing. Do we say you should do it, or do we think it's pointless, or do we think, uh, whatever, do what floats your boat? I'm going to say for myself, if I'm brewing outside of, say, a computer-controlled rig, I don't do it. I mash at a single infusion temperature rest, uh, 148 for my Belgians, 152 for my Americans, uh, 155 for uh, most of my British beers. But otherwise, I don't mess with it. Uh, I mean, heck, I don't even go to a mash-out anymore. So, I don't do it. Uh some people claim that, that you can get some benefits out of it, uh, particularly if you're using some of these heirloom malts that we just talked about a little bit earlier in the show. 
but uh, I have yet to see a real benefit to it, even though I know there are proponents out there who claim you know, great and glorious benefits to the idea, which makes it sound like it should be the subject of an experiment. Well, funny you should mention that. I have done uh, repeated tests of uh, step mashing and decoction mashing, uh, some of them more rigorous than others. But still, I, I, I've done it quite a few times, and... Uh, to tell you the truth, I haven't found anything about either decoction mashing or step mashing that has made a noticeable difference in any of the beers that I've made. Uh, not wanting to just totally declare them both worthless procedures, I still do one or the other very occasionally to see if I'm going to change my mind, and I, I haven't yet, uh, you know. There may be theoretical reasons for them. Uh, decoction mashing may just increase your uh, efficiency a bit, if that matters to you. But there's really no detectable difference in the finished beer. So I would have to agree with Drew and agree with Tom that maybe these are techniques that uh, just don't matter anymore. Uh, one thing that I've found is that most malts these days have so much diastatic power that even mash temp makes a whole lot less difference than it used to. Uh, Drew mentioned, uh, you know, possibly these techniques would be good for some of the heirloom varieties of malt. But again, you look at the specs on the bark malt, for instance, and that stuff is perfect for a single infusion. And I, you know, I have a hard time believing that another mash schedule would make a lot of difference to it. But, you know, you never know till you try... If you're like Tom or somebody else that has a uh, system where you can easily do a step mash, try it. Do a, the blind triangle test and see what you think, because uh, that's all that really matters in the end. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll back up one thing that you just said. I think a step mash can probably make a difference in terms of your efficiency of extract, just from sort of the repeated exposure and agitation and... Uh, time for sugar to diffuse from the grain but otherwise i don't think you're gonna i don't think you're gonna see a large amount of enzymatic effect from all your different rests like they always talk about no i don't think so either so okay our next question comes uh, via facebook from kelly wingert kelly wants to know what are the pros and cons of adding my second batch of sparge water to my mash tun before the first batch has drained while batch sparging. Okay, first of all, let's clear up what may be confusing to some people. Um, in my definition of batch sparging, when you drain the mash, that's not a sparge. Some people consider that a sparge. I consider sparging adding water after the mash has been drained, okay? Now, that said, some people add sparge water twice. I have found no reason to do that unless your mash tun isn't big enough to hold all the sparge water at once. Uh, the gain in efficiency you get ranges from nothing to almost unmeasurable. So there's really no reason to put your sparge water in in two batches. Now, Let's look at this question of Kelly's in light of that, okay? If you are truly in the sparge stage and you've drained the mash, added sparge water, you're draining that off, and then 
adding more water before that first batch of sparge water has drained off, the effects are going to be minimal. You're going to end up being closer to fly sparging. Um, but, you know, other than that, there's really probably no huge effect. If you are running off your mash and you add your sparge water while the mash is still running off, that's very much going to be like uh, like kind of a combination of fly and batch sparging. You may see your efficiency go down a little bit. You may not. Uh, so basically, it's like, what are the pros and cons? Well, they're about they're about equal. There's like really not a huge problem with doing it, but there's also probably no reason to need to do it. Uh, was that? sufficiently circular enough drew well i think i mean you're right i think you i think if you start adding the sparge water to the uh to the mash ton before you're done with your initial runoff then you've really created a hybrid method that i think should be called flash sparging <laughs> yeah right right or bly yep, there you go uh, but the bly slash flash sparging congratulations kelly you've just invented a new term that's right. So anyway, man, uh, you know, if if you want to add more sparge water before the first batch is run off, more power to you. But I would say uh, you're making your life more complicated than it needs to be. Do your best to see if you can get it all done with one addition of sparge water. Yeah, I, I think my 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 one take my one addition to that is I think if you're if you're doing that, you lose one of the primary benefits of batch sparging, which is that batch sparging allows you to you know take your runoff figure out how much you've gathered and then figure out how much more you need and, and be able right. to do that all as like really concrete measurements. So I think if you're, if you're adding your sparge water before, before you're done with your initial runoff, you're kind of losing one of those benefits. Cause then you kind of got to go, wait, 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 when do I turn this off? So, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It just makes, like I've said, it makes it more like fly sparging. Okay. And our last question today is about barrel aging or not barrel aging. Uh, Russian Imperial style. Yeah, all right. So this one comes from Big Easy on the HA forum. So, so I'm going to do a Russian Imperial stout, and I want the barrel-aged flavor. I have a medium oak beer sticks. Question one, what bourbon? I usually drink whiskey. Question two, how long in the bourbon soak? Question three, how long in the fermenter? I'm shooting for about 10% ABV. All right. So uh, medium, uh, medium toasted oak. Great. It's my favorite thing to use. I haven't used beer sticks in the past. I have used mostly cubes. Uh, on your question about uh, what bourbon, well, one, bourbon is whiskey. It's just different. Uh, but uh, what bourbon? I'm going to go out there and take a cue from my cheap and easy partner over here. And I'm going to tell you uh, whatever is the cheapest that doesn't taste horrible. So in the past, I've used... Uh, good old-fashioned Rebel Yell, I've used 10 High, and when I've been feeling really high on the hog, I've used Maker's Mark or Gentleman Jack. Uh, of course, Gentleman Jack's not actually bourbon, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, so I've used all sorts of different uh, bourbons. Honestly, I think as long as the bourbon itself is not kerosene, you're going to be fine, uh, and you're going to have a hard time particularly when you're just doing these uh, sort of oak, uh, these soaked oak alternatives, I think you're going to have a hard time discerning much of the bourbon character beyond just, oh, bourbon uh, in the base of your beer, particularly against a big, big beer. Yeah, I I, uh, 
I tend to use Jim Beam Black, and uh, I am not a bourbon or whiskey drinker whatsoever, so I just kind of decided, okay, it's a name I've heard, it's in a middle price range. But my thought on the matter is that if you can tell what bourbon you've added, then you've used too much. Yeah. Uh, the bourbon and the beer should be an integrated single flavor. It shouldn't be screaming bourbon at you. So pick a good bourbon, pick something you could drink, but uh, if you're trying to use a top shelf bourbon, you're wasting your money. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't bust, uh, don't bust open the piggy bank for this one. Uh, all right. So how long in the bourbon soak? All right. This is, this is also a place where I'm different than everybody else. Uh, you'll see most people out there, they advocate for a couple of weeks. And then there's a big sort of back and forth of, do you add the bourbon? Do you not add the bourbon? Uh, I, in the brewery that we were just in for our ingredient discussion, have a giant bucket of flavors. Denny has seen this. Uh, oh, yes. And in that bucket of flavors is a whole set of half-gallon mason jars. And those are filled with American oak cubes. And they have been soaking in bourbon for 13 years now. And I bust those out uh, every once in a while. So if you're going to ask me how long in bourbon, I will tell you as long as you can make it happen. Now, I will also tell you if you're going that long, do not add the bourbon because <laughs> the bourbon becomes a giant <laughs> tannic mess. But the wood becomes fantastic. What would you say would be the shortest amount of time you would want to use? Um, I would say at least a month. But in reality, I would say go for as many months as you can. If you're, if you're brewing a Russian Imperial Stout and you're going for a big, big beer... You got some time. So I would I would say, hey, you know, try and the day you brew this thing or hell, the day you conceive of making this beer, get your oak cubes or your oak stick in this case into some bourbon and just let it go. So that's my take. Uh, but I would say a month is a minimum uh, and the longer you can go, the better. I, I will tell you right now, those uh, bourbon beans, the second they hit about five years were fantastic. And now they're just, you know, crazy. And also, again, the longer the soak, the less likely I would be to use the bourbon in the beer because the bourbon itself will be picking up a lot of tannin from the oak. And that's just not a good flavor to have. So how long should they stay in the fermenter then? All right. Yeah. That's question number three. Again, this is also where I am different than a lot of people. If you read a lot of people's advice online, they will tell you, all right, take your oak cubes or your oak chips or whatever and stick them in the fermenter and let it age for, you know, six to uh, six months to a year. Um, I don't like that flavor. I think when you're when you're in there for that long, you actually get too much wood and too much bourbon. Uh, you also get a lot of vanilla, which is a nice thing. But I think you pick up the vanilla and the lighter characteristics of the oak and the lighter characteristics of the bourbon much, much faster than people give them credit for. A lot of times, I think homebrewers take this sort of notion of aging for multiple months uh, from commercial brewers who are in big wood barrels with... You know, all their issues about surface uh, surface area ratios and contact time and micro-oxygenation that they care about. You're not going to get micro-oxygenation with uh, any of these oak alternatives. So, for me, I usually let my, my oak sit in the beer for a month and then I taste. And I think the longest I've ever let gone in recent times has been about two months. Now, that may be a side effect of the fact that I'm using those, you know, super potent beans... But even when they were fresher, I still didn't go for much longer than a month most of the time. So, well, and I think I think the key really is what you said there: taste yeah. it. You know, 
uh, taste it, taste it after a week, taste it after two weeks, taste it after three weeks. Hey, you get a beer out yeah, of it. What, I mean, what I mean in terms of, in terms of having time to react or a way to react to your beer flavor, using these oak alternatives or having a beer in the barrel is ultimately, if you mess it up, the the fault lies with yourself because you weren't checking in on it right. enough. If you check in on it enough, say check in on it after two weeks and after, you know, like every two weeks, just give it a quick taste. And by the way, we're not talking pulling a whole damn pint out of this. We're talking, you know, like get a nice little pipette and pour yourself like a shot and smell and taste that. Wow. Well, and look, if you keep, if you keep, if you keep taking a pint every two weeks, you're going to run out of pints. So, I well, I only need I, the, I only need a very small sample to tell whether or not I think the oak is in the right ballpark. So right. in that case, just right. get yourself a small sample every two weeks until you learn what it is that you like. There are some people out there who do like the multi-month, multi-almost a year uh, type of schedule. I don't like that flavor. So that's my take. I go two months at the longest. Right. That's a perfect segue into our quick tip this week which uh, comes from me, and it's a tip about how to sample your beer and get more of an idea about what the finished beer is really going to be like. Sure, you can use Drew's pipette and uh, taste some warm, flat beer and try and extrapolate where that's going. What I like to do is uh, I save up uh, 20-ounce PET bottles, and uh, when it's time to take a gravity reading or a flavor sample of the beer... I'll put uh, probably any place from uh, 8 to 12 ounces of beer into a 20-ounce PET bottle, uh, squeeze out all the air in there, put a carbonator cap on it, hit it with about 30 PSI, and stick that in your freezer for 45 minutes. What you're going to find out is that you end up with a cold carbonated sample of your beer that actually gives you a much better idea of what the finished beer is going to taste like than uh, than tasting it warm and flat. Now, tasting it warm and flat is good too because you you know that's just another experience. But uh, on the other hand, if you're going to be taking enough uh, of a gravity sample to fill a hydrometer flask, uh, you might as well sit down with that beer and enjoy it afterwards. So, there is my quick tip. So for uh, something other than beer this week. Uh, we called on our guest analyst, Marshall Schott, to see what uh, he's into that isn't beer. So, you know, based based on what it is that I spend most of my time doing, uh, or at least publicly doing, uh, which is brewing and beer and whatnot, um, it's easy to assume that maybe I have no other interests. But the reality is I actually uh, have another kind of passion, uh, another love, and that is uh, music, both writing, recording, and as well as listening, of course. Um, I started uh, playing the guitar when I was a kid, you know, a young preteen and uh, something I've never really put down. I still play and I write music and I still record every once in a while when I'm not making beer or collecting data. Um, you know, I would say that I've had a bit of an evolution in interests in terms of when, uh, of music when it comes to music. Uh, it kind of started with the whole punk scene and, and I was listening to a lot of No Effects and Lagwagon and all those bands. And um, I've sort of evolved into more, uh, I'm not sure what you'd call it, but kind of modern 
uh, bluegrass, folky kind of country type stuff, more mellow stuff I can play in the house when my kids are asleep. So, yep, uh, besides beer, I'm a big music dork and uh, still enjoy some of the loud, raunchier stuff, but can kind of dig on some mellower stuff as well. So, if I were to go through my iPod right now, uh, I just downloaded the new Mandolin Orange record. Uh, I think it's really great. Kind of, kind of a similar sound on all of their records, which which is comforting, but at the same time can get a little bit boring. So I toss in a little bit of. Uh, lately, I've been tossing in a little bit. Say like uh, the the latest Death Cab for Cutie's been really good. I'm from Bellingham, so there's kind of a hometown feel there. Um, I've even been getting into some Say Anything, uh, real kind of power pop punky stuff that, that, that makes exercising really easy. Okay, it's time for the question of the week, and it's a pretty simple one. What do you think about the results of the hot whirlpool temperature experiment? Uh, anything there that you might be able to use yourself? Does it make you want to try it and uh, see what you think? And the other question is, we need a name for what we're calling our Gladwell winner right now. That's the, uh, the Igor who can come up with the results most outside of the range of everybody else. Uh, so if you have a, a suggestion for a name for that award, let us know. Uh, Drew, what did we do this week? All right. So this week we talked about uh, our upcoming Q&A episode. So get your questions in, questions at experimentalbrew.com. We talked about the impending doom of cans. We talked about science with a capital S. We talked about the Pacific Northwest Homebrewers Conference. We talked about Denny doing something silly and poli- uh, politically like. We talked our experiment results, you know, whirlpools at 170 versus whirlpools at 120. We talked with the folks at Southern Beer and Winemaking about how you run a nano brewery and fill up 24 taps and a homebrew shop at the same time. And then finally, we hit your questions. We gave you a little bit of a quick tip on PET carbonations for samples. And we told you something really kind of cool and non-beery before coming back to our final question. And now our time to say goodbye. Yeah, and one other thing we talked about that I want to bring up real quick is Patreon and our charity, uh, Freedom Service Dogs. Please, please, please contribute. Help us uh, help these pooches and help our uh, disabled veterans who need a service dog. So thanks a whole bunch for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. We're also on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Uh, Drew tells me we're on Instagram, but I've never been on Instagram, so I wouldn't really know. Uh, If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or rant and rave about a previous experiment, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to email each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Hey!